This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. We often think of the late 19th century in Western societies with its railroads, telegraphs, emerging science, age of Darwin as an era of immense technological and scientific change, moving from religion to secularism, from faith to logic. But as today's guest Dominic Green shows in his new book, The Religious Revolution, The Birth of Modern Spirituality, 1848-1898, religion in the 19th century was a much stronger force and also a lot weirder than we give it credit for. What we discuss is during the period that introduced Darwin's theory of evolution, democratic revolution, mass urbanization, and the industrial revolutions, also brought with it a new kind of religiosity. This period didn't see an absence of religion, but instead new forms of spirituality that filled the vacuum left behind by the diminished prominence of the church in Europe and American politics and life. In fact, what led Dominic to think about writing this book topic was when he was physically rehabilitating, he decided to take yoga classes and wonder, how did a physical expression of Eastern spirituality find its way into Western public consciousness? In the 1800s, while it was fueled by rapid scientific and technological innovation, these decades were also a time of social strife. You saw the abolishment of slavery and serfdom, the first women's rights convention at Seneca Falls, and countless artistic and literary movements. But this period was also plagued by the aggressive rise of colonialism, subjecting entire populations to those who had a bottomless appetite for money and power. There were all sorts of influences that caused this change to happen. New Sanskrit translations of Hindu and Buddhist texts influenced the works of Ralph Waldo Emerson. You also see the rise of occultism from upstate New York to Bombay to Italy. Religion and nationalism also entwined for Richard Wagner and Nietzsche. Finally, you see the rise of the Theosophist movement, which is sort of the crown jewel of religion as self-help. In the 21st century, when there's incredible distrust of traditional institutions, and in Western societies, many traditional religious institutions are losing the influence they once had. Many people may be leaving them, but they still claim to hold some kind of spirituality. And as Green shows in this episode, many similar things were happening in the mid to late 19th century, which can give us an idea of where we're headed. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Dominic Green. Something on this podcast that I try to do is debunk pernicious ideas that stick around and I think misinform how we understand the past. And one of those things that's come up frequently is the conflict thesis between science and religion. This was a, a book in the 19th century that really, where this idea is by someone named J.W. Draper, who depicted the past in many ways as an eternal struggle between science and religion. And when one rises, the other one necessarily falls. Now, that could be true in very particular circumstances and times and places. Otherwise, the idea would have no resonance. But as a universal idea, I think it 
flattens how we know about the past. And your book uh, is something that explores this interesting area and nuance and how the two sometimes were in conflict, but sometimes openly collaborated with each other. So I'm curious, what in your reading or your research first made you consider that we've misunderstood the 19th century narrative about modernity and progress and religion, and you thought that this misunderstanding deserved a book-length treatment to correct it? Well, Scott, I would say two things. One of them, a general impression that um, if an age of reason had replaced uh, the rule of uh, irrationality and religion, then it wasn't working out very well, as we seem to be in an age of growing irrationality. But in particular, I must confess, it wasn't anything to do with reading or research. It was because I had a bad back. And uh, I'd come to the United States and, you know, instead of, of being advised to take, you know, a couple of aspirin or whatever it would, it would have been in Britain at the time, someone said, oh, you have to do some yoga. So I went off and I found a yoga studio and, and joined in. And of course, there I was straining and heaving and, and, you know, upside down and sideways. And it occurred to me, why am I doing this? And I realized, well, because it did actually sort out my back. But also, how did I come to be doing this? And then I realized that this was a, a significant shift had occurred in the way that people live in the US or in the broader Western world. This uh, spirituality was effectively the idea that seemed to hold all these things together, that uh, the, the maintenance of your inner life uh, in a particular way that obviously did not have much to do with the Christian institutions and Christian theology, which had done so much to shape the West. So after I'd recovered from the yoga and started reading around it more seriously, I, I then came to identify this notion of spirituality, which is something which if you'd stopped people in the street in the late 1800s and asked if they were in possession of it, the chances are, unless they were what was then called progressive thinkers, uh, the chances are they wouldn't really have got what you were talking about. On the other hand, now, if you stop anybody in the Western world and say, uh, what is spirituality, they will tell you exactly what it is. It is effectively come to replace what used to be called religion, in particular institutional religion. Now, if you go back a another 100 years from the late 1800s, you go to the late 1700s and ask someone, chances are very few people at all would have got it. And if they did, they would have associated it with very emotional forms of, of Protestantism, and that would have been it. You know, the feeling spiritual, I think the earliest attested use goes back to the mid-17th century, to Puritans. But not in the sense, of course, that we mean it. it. It's gradually expanded to become the idea of ourselves, in effect, that we have, our, how our outer selves reflects our inner life. And of course, as a historian, it's very easy, in a sense, providing you can get hold of the documents, it's very easy to be a historian of economics or a historian of politics or something. But of course, the hardest thing for historians to do is to know what did it feel like? How did people think? What did it look like to them at the time? And, and I realized that in our great age of, of individuality, which is to say subjectivity, how things feel to us is, of course, more important than it's ever been in a way. In our great age of subjectivity and individuality, only an approach which talks about how people felt and how they understood it internally could explain these enormous shifts. Uh, because it's very clear that we have undergone an enormous shift in that uh, the shift in religious belief that has occurred and then how people relate to institutions, even in the United States, which was always the outlier in the West, it was always the most Christian society. This shift has occurred and, and uh, looking for the, the hinge moment in a way for when this new idea of spirituality and the new idea of the sort of human being in a way was coming into shape. Well, that brings us to the middle of the 19th century. So that's where I began. Well, that's a great example of using yoga as an entry point because it's so ingrained in American health that we don't even think of it as Eastern. It's American as apple pie in some senses. And there was a great article by The Onion a few years ago that said one in five American women are now certified yoga instructors, which um, <laughs> don't know if it's almost, almost true, but I've pondered that same thing. I wondered the way that modern medicine prescribed yoga as for both calisthenics, for limberness, but then also for, for mindfulness and uh, reducing stress. What if in an alternate universe, this had not entered, let's say, American consciousness and the lines of you know, Judeo-Christian heritage remain much, much firmer, would prescribed health benefit be something that someone developed based off of the Old Testament, follow the Samson diet, follow the David diet. But instead, we have this complex intermixing that came from the 19th century and perhaps earlier. Before we delve into this time period, could you describe the period before 
the action in your book. This would be the, let's say, late 18th, early 19th centuries, the generations of, at least in the United States, the founding fathers with the Enlightenment still holding strong, the early founding fathers being proud Unitarians and rejecting Trinitarianism as being inherently illogical. What was this time period like? So we have some context for what comes next. Well, that's always one of the very difficult things when you, you decide to write a book, because history is just one damn thing after another. You, you have to pick a start point and pick a finish point. But you're quite right. The prehistory of this is actually uh, fascinating in its own right. One of the legacies we assume really to be true of the 20th century is this idea that the personal is political. And this was an idea that was most definitely established in, in this uh, period I'm writing about in the 19th century. And it was born in a way in the period following the Reformation in England, the creation of the Puritan Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell, leading up then to the French and American revolutions. This was uh, obviously the transformation of societies, the emergence of modern nation states. But above all, it's the period in which one of the strangest shifts occurs in Western history and is always quite, it's almost overlooked, which is the way in which a religious conscience, which is what the, the Protestant revolt was about, translated itself into what we would think of now as secular principles. For instance, the, the freedom of speech reflects the establishment of the freedom of conscience. The format of parliamentary debate that we have is really that of, of the disputatio, the, the religious debate, when a point of theological truth is hashed out. In that period, then, you have this shift from explicitly religious politics to politics which talks about itself as being rational, as being limited, in fact, usually because it divides its powers between church and state, for instance. The politics that we call Western liberal politics emerge at the same time. Now, one thing we know, of course, because we live under it, is that Western liberal politics is highly rational. You know, it is the famously, you know, Weber called it, you know, an iron cage when it works. And yet, of course, we remain irrational creatures and the result is that our politics are, are perennially susceptible, in a way, to being hijacked by our feelings, by our sentiments. Now, in the 18th century, the sentiments were valued in, in the drawing room and the salon, but they were generally distrusted when it came to politics. And, and the structure of the American Constitution, of course, famously reflects that. And that was the, the experimental advanced version of these things. If you'd ask somebody in Europe in the late 18th century, generally speaking, they were horrified by the French Revolution. They were terrified by the idea that the individual was supreme, that the individual was capable, or even when receiving one of those 18th century educations, was capable of making informed political judgments. That was always meant to be reserved for a ruling class or caste. And even well into the 19th century, most European politicians, most European middle-class people even, viewed the United States in particular as a doomed experiment, that this entire democratic madness would end up in chaos and so on, because people were not sufficiently rational. However, they gradually caught up to the point that they themselves came to believe in this creed of the rational individual. So by the late 19th century, you have this shift in Europe towards liberal democracy as well. And the result, as we know, of course, was the two world wars, which also came out of Europe. In other words, the potential for chaos in a doctrine which says the individual is supreme is always there. And how it emerged is, of course, in many ways, the crucial story of, of our times. Well, coming to the period in question in your book, beginning with the 1840s, what changes, whether social, technological, class, happened that caused this change in how religion was perceived? Well, it's a very complicated shift that occurs, and we use a shorthand, you know, the Industrial Revolution, or we use a shorthand and talk about uh, the rise of democracy. But there are two or three things, and one of them to me, which is very important, again, often underrated, is the power of technology ex itself, that it was uh, technology of speed and reproduction. In other words, you can make something in a factory and ship it on a train. You can communicate over huge distances with telegraphs. All of these things reduced our perception of distance, and they created the forerunners, really, of what we now would think of as online communities, people who are connected over a very large space by technology and see themselves as belonging to that group almost as much or even more than they feel they might belong to the people who live 
in their own street. So technology is a crucial factor, and industrialization is part of that. The effect of the political revolutions in the 18th century, which really turned into a sort of open-ended question, both in the United States and in Europe, of course famously in the United States over the question of slavery, and in Europe more generally over questions of, of representation. So this was like a rolling political revolution, really. And the third thing is, is a very slow-burning, slow-running process, which again goes back to the Reformation, or perhaps even a little before that, which is what they call Protestantization with a small p. Thomas Carlyle, when he wrote about the French Revolution, said this is the last of the great Protestant revolts of individual passions, as it were, uh, coming out into the streets and changing the political system. He said, lower than that, we cannot go. But he was being an optimist. And of course, what we've seen subsequently is there is is no bottom to these things. You can always have uh, political revolutions. So all of these things kind of coincide. Now, the greater the, the Protestantization, the greater the individualism and so on, the, the weaker the religious institutions were. And in particular, you see two approaches to Christianity developing. One of them in the United States, of course, famously, is the separation of powers and the encouragement, really, of sectarianism. And the other is the, say, the, the classic French revolutionary model, which puts the, the culture of reason and the republic against the institutional power of the church. Now, both of those things lead curiously enough, to a, to a disillusion with religious institutions. But it takes different forms in the US uh, as, than it did from Europe. And all of these things start to cohere in the early part of the 19th century. Now, if you look at, say, William Blake, who was a participant in the rioting in, the, in London in 1880, uh, and then witnesses the French Revolution and, and is very enthusiastic about it, William Blake's uh, highly personal religious system takes place within a recognizably Christian framework. He has more in common with one of the Renaissance occultists than he does, say, uh, with Karl Marx, with whose lifetime he overlapped. Now, you compare William Blake, say, to Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's, you know, 20, 30 years younger. Emerson is explicitly rejecting, eventually, the Christianity that he's brought up with, and he's aiming at a kind of global spirit. And that is a big, big difference, I would suggest. That's the point at which you start to have major intellectual figures who are of the West, but not in it in some way, who are seeing themselves as being greater than that. In other words, seeing themselves as globalized. And this is a condition which you know, takes place in Emerson's imagination in the 1830s. But by the 1870s, it's becoming a condition of a large number of people. The revolution in, in transportation, in communication, and of course, in military power as well, which has allowed the European empires to assemble a kind of global system. By the 1870s, if you're living in a major city, you are touched by this globalized world. And of course, you need an inner life to reflect that. And thus, you have more and more uptake of ideas, which around 1870, people are starting to call new age ideas. Right. And I want to definitely come into the sources and translations that are affecting this movement And one question before we get into the particulars, I wonder, would you characterize this change, um, let's say in the 1850s, 1860s, you would have transcendentalists, you would have religious people, it looks like it's a cult. Do you see this as being more of a top-down intellectual-led movement, or is there any sort of bottom-up movement? Would a farmer in notice any difference from, let's say, 1820 to 1860 in rural Ohio or rural England? Or is this more of a top-down movement that's trickling to them, or are there any bottom-up elements? Well, that is a very complicated question, which I'll have to take into several pieces. Generally speaking, this begins as top-down in the sense that you have to be over-educated in order to have the time to ponder these things, and you have to have a certain amount of time too. That said, mass literacy, which is another great phenomenon of the 19th century. And of course, Americans were well ahead of the curve on this. Americans were literate at the time of the revolution. Of course, we know the role that newsprint played in inculcating the revolutionary spirit in colonial America. That condition becomes more and more a a normal part of life. As we have it now, you can be that farmer hundreds of miles away from a major urban center. On the other hand, if you have an internet connection, you will be up to date uh, with the debates. And of course, if you can read, you can follow them as well. So in that sense, it's more of a question of time and until the, the, the gap between the city and the country is bridged. Now, the gap between the city and the country is a real thing. 
and it's noted in, even in the 18th century. And this is an, a big part of, I think, what drove these changes is urban living. The feeling of being in the city uh, is in itself changes how we see each other and how we see ourselves. Uh, you know, in the 18th century, the, the, the English were complaining that, you know, when people went to the city, the first thing they did was stop going to church, that they would, in other words, make a new identity for themselves once they did move to the city. But the story in many ways of, of modern history is that of the cities, the cities against each other, the cities against the country. There's an interesting influence in this movement, texts from the Middle East or the Far East that influence these movements. And you could see it from, let's say, uh, Mormonism, where uh, Joseph Smith gets following the translation of the Rosetta Stone, and there's an, an Egyptomania in the United States has these Egyptian texts that claims are from the Book of Abraham that Abraham wrote during his time in Egypt, or Ralph Waldo Ederson being influenced by new Sanskrit translations of Hindu and Buddhist texts and following this rise of occultism. So how does this uh, translation of texts outside of the Western world influence religion at this time? Well, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, one place it doesn't tend to come from is the university, which is where we would now expect, you know, the serious study and translation of obscure texts to occur. It doesn't at all come from universities. Most of it tends to come from private scholars. In some cases, uh, those close to the East India Company, you know, British administrators who also were fascinated by uh, the evidently older culture that they had landed amongst um, in India. A lot of this, I would see, again, uh, in, in universities today, there are departments of, of comparative literature or comparative religion. A lot of this stuff actually begins in religion. The translations, of course, of the Bible, famously made for religious motives in, in the 17th century and earlier, and that same spirit applied itself to the discovery of other people's religions and other texts. Now, one of the crucial questions here, and it's something that in the 18th century people were very much aware of and, and were more troubled by in the 19th, is, is the question of whether you could have a universal civilization where one size fits all across the world. Now, technology, of course, promises to deliver that, and in some way it does. If you take a plane from one country to another, you're part of a universal system. Everyone uses the same communications methods and codes. But in, when it comes to the most deeply held feelings people have, religious ones, of course, the question of whether your spiritual position was, say, absolute or relative, whether you had the absolute truth or just your version of it, was the crisis, really, that came along with this. Because once you start having archaeology, another great discovery of the 18th century there. Once you have archaeology, once you have the translations of religious texts, then it becomes very clear that Christianity is, relatively speaking, a latecomer. And in fact, no sooner were these texts translated, say, into French, than Voltaire was using the antiquity of Indian religion as a hammer with which to bash the French state by saying, you know, the, what legitimacy do they have? They're, they're, Christianity is merely you know, the, the cult, an obscure sun god cult and so on, compared to the majesty of ancient India. Now, this was in the 1760s, by the way, and yet pretty much the same thing was being said in the 1960s as well. So there's a very long tradition of people adopting the broad view of religion in order to outflank their rivals politically at home. In other words, that uh, if you are demonstrably a, a more spiritual person, then you probably are more deserving of power in your own society. Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. First, I want to give a shout out to all the great podcasts on the Parthenon Podcast Network, including This American President, which you can find if you go to ParthenonPodcast.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. 
Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. That's one approach of asking the question of what could be a universal value system and the integration of these texts from other civilizations is a new thing. There's another new development here at this time period in the middle and late 19th century and where religious figures will be using science to buffet their arguments. So for example, I forget the name of this term, but some arguing in the late 19th century that scientific truths can be found in the Bible arguing back against Darwinism, for example. Another thing I saw is uh, one of the things I studied were uh, Muslim and Christian religious polemics where the two sides are trying to prove the other religion to be false. And this has been going on since the rise of Islam where Christians and Muslims are arguing against each other. But a difference from, say, the 19th century and the 9th century is the 9th century, they would be arguing using Aristotelian philosophy or talking about internal contradictions within the holy books. But in the 19th century, A Christian might say, well, Islam is scientifically irrational because you expect to follow sunrise to sunset fast during Ramadan. How does that work if you live in northern Russia? And a Muslim might say, well, there are scientific truths within the Quran because using ablutions and washing of yourself had hygienic standards we couldn't possibly know in the seventh century. And even using the prostrations of prayer are calisthenically helpful. So the use of science at this time period, how does this change in uh, religious writings and religious sentiment? Well, this is a, a crucial question, really, because one thing we can say, looking around the world now, is that despite the takeover of every part of our existence by science and its procedures and technology, not all religions suffered accordingly. It simply isn't the case that, say, Hinduism or Islam or Judaism suffered the same blows to their public credibility as Christianity did. And there are two ways of answering that, the question why that was. And one of them is perhaps the, the emphasis upon miracles in terms of how Christianity was taught. Because, of course, compared to Judaism or Islam, they are legally minded religions, much more to do with action and so on. The other question is to do with the particular circumstances in which Western liberal secular politics emerged. In other words, they define themselves as secular of this age against religion. Only in the West did socialism, uh, as famously Marx said, the question of bringing heaven down to earth, in other words, reversing the traditional aspiration towards heaven and trying to build a perfection of society on earth. There's a long tradition, of course, of that in Christianity. And only in the West, of course, did socialism develop as the alternative way of organizing a society, of redeeming humanity. Now, we, of course, are accustomed to think of socialism as a rationalistic, science-minded thing, but it isn't or wasn't for most of its existence. If you read the early socialist theorists, they uh, were frequently anarchic. 
they were very much religiously minded and often specifically spoke. I mean, the, you know, the great liberal minded people, like say Mazzini, talking about we need an ethos. This is in the 1840s, an ethos that will replace Christianity and give people something to aspire towards, and that will be a political ethos. So socialism develops in the West, I say, as, as the alternative, as the heir, positions itself as a spiritual heir to Christianity. The idea that it was scientific, of course, comes much later. One of the great shocks that occurred in uh, the 1950s and 60s was the translation of Marx's early notebooks, in which Marx sounds more like a romantic poet than an economist. He only very slowly and not very successfully became an economist uh, over a long period of time. The idea of scientific socialism, of course, was the creation of Engels uh, years after Marx's death. Even Marx himself was hoping to redeem the human frailties that had made a fair society impossible. And he also hoped, of course, that uh, technology would be the vehicle to it. Now, the fetish for technology, and, and I say fetish advisedly because, I mean, it is Marx who went to the Great Exhibition of 1851, which was the first really global exhibition where you could see the whole world in one big shopping mall, in effect. And Marx did come up with his theory of the commodity fetish, the idea that we worship the, the possessions that we can buy as if they have powers to transform us. The fetish for technology, again, is a uniquely Western response to these changes in communication and economy and power in the world. So there are very particular things that occur that only happen in the West. You know, if you look at, say, um, Hindu nationalism or, or Zionism, these are cases where a religious ethos has married itself very tidily and dynamically to a political, modern political system. That hasn't happened in the West, has it? People in the West have usually defined politics as being against organized religion rather than the servant of it. And they've usually tied, therefore, their technology to this project of transforming everything as, as fast as possible. These are very specifically Western ideas. And in the 19th century, they used to call them Promethean. They would say, you know, rather than um, this being modeled on uh, anything from the Bible, this was actually the stealing of uh, sacred fire in Greek mythology. In other words, they looked literally to before Christianity for an image of the kind of person who we would understand now as, as being one of the lords of Silicon Valley, for instance, or one of the railway tycoons of the 19th century. So there are very specific changes that occur in the, in the West that produce this kind of Western person that we now just see as perfectly ordinary, as if it's always been like that. But it really hasn't. Speaking of ancient symbolism and perhaps being obsessed with ancient symbolism, I'd like to bring up Richard Wagner. You mentioned him and Friedrich Nietzsche and others that explore religion and nationalism. So you do rightly note that there's a conflict between politics and religion in the West that plays out much differently in other parts of the world. But religion has a role in the development of nationalism. So at this time period in your book, there's also this very important question of what does it mean to be a nation if you're French or Serbian or whatever, is this an ethnic identity? Is this purely linguistic? Is this a set of ideals? Is this religion? Sometimes all of the above, sometimes one of those, sometimes none of those. So can you talk about how religion and nationalism entwine for someone like Wagner or Nietzsche or others? Well, this is, this is a, a crucial question, isn't it? I mean, broadly speaking, you could say that in the period before this, people thought of belonging as a spiritual essence. In other words, you, you had a, a, a soul which expressed itself in certain religious sentiments and so on. That bound you. In the 17, 1800s, the idea that uh, every people was the product of a particular climate and soil and, and with, a, with a character to suit was part of the romantic theory of these things. That was also a sacred essence. You know, you could, you could move from Germany to France, but you didn't become a Frenchman by doing it because you were meant to be acclimated over generations to the German conditions. The great shift in the 19th century, of course, is that race becomes the great essence which everybody is supposed to be defined by. And of course, we are still in that age. What we call anti-racism is merely an effort to reapportion the spoils um, in the reverse direction. The idea still holds that the most important thing you could possibly have is your racial identity, and this defines all other social relations. Well, that is a very 19th century idea, even if we are sophisticated enough to invert it. Now, Wagner, of course, is, is a was a titanic figure in his culture and was also thought an impeccably progressive and, and modern-minded person. And it is in Wagner, perhaps, that you find this extremely dangerous mixture 
of racial theory, nationalism, and socialism. Wagner, although he was extremely ambitious and greedy, was most definitely what he called a socialist. He believed in collectivizing the German people. And of course, we do know how that turned out in the long run. And Wagner is one of the um, absolutely intellectual forerunners of Nazism. But, which, which, and, and of course, the historians were, are, are now perhaps beginning to shift their understanding of Nazism. For a long time, they say the official line, as it were, among academic historians was as that uh, fascism was capitalism to a higher power. But no one really believes that anymore. In fact, if you look, fascism is, is the great anti-liberal, anti-capitalist movement. This is why it was so strongly anti-Jewish as well, because Jews are identified with liberalism and capitalism, certainly by Wagner. So the centrality of race in the way of forming this new collective is what gradually develops over the course of the 19th century. And that is, of course, the century in which people start to work out things like, for instance, evolution, or you know, the, the grounds of, of gene theory and so on are also developed in this point. So, um, and Wagner is nothing if not fashionable, and he's very much up to date with all this stuff, and he creates a, a template of, of, of kind of artistic nationalism. And again, this is something which we have sort of merely inverted in that at our time, most artists see themselves as being against the state, even if they're supported by it. While in the 19th century, most artists tended to see themselves as serving the nation and its, and, and the, its glorious march forward. The great exception eventually to this, of course, is Nietzsche, who was in some ways Wagner's publicist and then split with Wagner for various reasons, emotional and political and became the great skeptic of the entire modern effort to rebuild society as a democratic collective. It's in Nietzsche that every negative observation we might have about mass democracy, mass culture, all of these things, first finds its expression. And it's also in Nietzsche that we find a very strong expression of the individual's right to be free. And in particular, and this is one of the things that Nietzsche scholars tend to talk a lot about Greek philosophy and, and Wagner, they tend to overlook the fact that uh, so much of Nietzsche's thought is explicitly sexual. It's a very long creed occur, a plea for acceptance, of, of particularly of homosexuality. Now, this again is one of the causes, as it were, of progressive thought in the 19th century, that if we are free individuals, then we should be able to express and form the bonds socially that we wish to choose. And this, of course, produces a drastic change in human relations in, in the, the culture of sexual equality between men and women, between men and men, whatever. This is one of the, the things which is also invented at this point. And that, I, I think, does have something to do, actually, with this change in self-conception in terms of spirituality and how people see themselves and then others. They effectively have come to shift their ideas of the individual essence from the old-fashioned idea, say, of the soul or the nation to these modern ideas of race and sexuality and what we would now call sex and gender. And that is all happening in the late 19th century. It's quite astonishing how modern these people were that so many of our thoughts are actually already circulating and already got quite large audiences, certainly among the educated, by the end of the 19th century, to the point that Nietzsche, who dies in virtual obscurity, has become a kind of global celebrity within 10 years. I think he died in like 1900, and 10, 15 years later, everyone's saying, well, you know, this, this First World War that's broken out is really the fulfillment of Nietzsche's thought, which is what people were saying at the time. This is astonishing, the uptake from obscurity to, again, being part of the furniture, being taken as read. So it's out of, weirdly enough, out of this race theory and radical politics and, and doctrines often of hatred and violence, that a great deal of, of our ideas of modern freedom and how we are to, to conduct ourselves emerge. In discussing some of the major figures in your book who influence religious shifts, another one is Darwin that uh, ostensibly is very simple to understand how he affects religious thought, but I'm sure there's much more to it. So how does he influence things? Well, Darwin, I have to say, was one of those people who you feel slightly let down by the more you read him. On the <laughs> other hand, he, he made these brilliant observations, but then he sat on them because he wasn't sure if it would be wise to publish them. There's a, there's a wonderful moment, you know, when uh, Karl Marx finally manages to finish uh, Das Kapital, and he sends a copy to Darwin. 
And I and and Darwin, of course, doesn't even look at it. He doesn't realize that the, you know. Then and they're working virtually in the same city. Dar- and and Marx snipes you know something in his letters to Engels. You know the problem with Darwin is that he thinks that evolution is like a sort of English society, that everyone has their place and and quietly you know moves into it and stays in it. Darwin, it's true, did see things as a uh, an upper middle class Englishman did. He was very much concerned, and he understood actually, I think, quite correctly, that there was no moral in evolution. That's eventually what he had to confess. He could see no moral purpose in evolution. Well, if you take away morality, what what remains? Well, force. You have the rule of strength. And that when you read what Darwin wrote, he does keep saying it. This is a rule of strength. And he, and he also said that he could see no overriding purpose to the evolutionary process, which is very different to how, say, the 18th century forerunners of evolution, or even contemporaries, Lamarckian evolution, which was very popular, for instance, in, in Germany in particular, they did think that there was a, 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 an inner evolvement towards perfection was what was taking place which in other words, the spiritual development of humanity as well as other species was bound up with their biological development. Well, Darwin didn't see that. He just saw, you know, mankind as being, you know, a a nasty, hairless ape with no great purpose beyond becoming nastier and more hairless. These were his great attainments. So Darwin, he knew that he was opening the door to a kind of nihilism, as, as Nietzsche would call it, which was the idea that might makes right. And that, of course, was the idea that he had in common with Marx, for whom the ends justify the means, and it's about marshalling power to those ends. And that, of course, was the doctrine also of the nation-state at arms that might makes right. And the involvement of the doctrine of power for its own sake, or power that we don't understand, is one of the hallmarks of the age. In fact, Tolstoy, you know, when he, he writes War and Peace, he tried to write it more in peace, of course, as a history book. And he, this isn't, he started writing it as a novel in 1865. He couldn't write his history book. He found it was beyond him. So instead, he tacked on the uh, philosophical essays at the end, which no one ever reads. And in, in one of them, he actually says, we call that thing power, which we no longer have a name for. In other words, if we, we can't call it God, or we can't call it humanity moving towards perfection, then you have power for its own sake. And that, of course, is, is literally the definition of, of nihilism in Nietzsche. Uh, and Nietzsche, of course, is the person who says you will overcome this by uh, using your individual reserves. You are to literally, as we would say now, to be empowered. You will empower yourself through your vital energies to overcome uh, the, the past and these legacies and your prior personality and become literally a better, freer person. That's explicitly what Nietzsche is saying. Now, to me, that sounds very religious, of course, but we think of it as a form of philosophy. It is, in a way, a form, it is a form, it is what they call Laban's philosophy, philosophy of living, which is very much a part of our culture still, and in the 1960s became established, really, as, as the default for the middle-class West, that your spiritual development was almost certainly not going to be bound up, certainly if you're a European, not going to be bound up in the church. And indeed, for most uh, blue state Americans, I think that still holds true. There are evangelical movements in America, but the traffic, generally speaking, is towards less and less institutional religiosity and more and more of this, uh, what we would call self-development, self-fulfillment, or self-empowerment, these doctrines. And they are 19th century spiritual doctrines. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Almost two centuries on the other side of Darwin, there have been very different religious responses from the Catholic Church, which accepted evolution as part of the story of creation and officially accepts evolution as true, versus, let's say, creation science, which uh, would try to prove that the Earth is 6,000 years old and the dinosaurs cohabitate with man. Interestingly enough, I mean, for what I've read about this development, something people misunderstand is it's a very modern approach to this question of evolution, that it's attempting to fight evolution with science of its own. Now, you can question how factually bound it is, but the point being that they're using this interpretation of Genesis in a literal way and trying to argue literally that's true rather than as a metaphor, like someone like Augustine would do in the fourth or fifth century. So, but anyway, in the first few years and decades after Darwin, what is the religious response to him? Well, generally one of institutional loathing and detestation, which was exactly what he had feared. But also there was an effort to square the circle. And, and, and of course, as you're saying, it was very strange because it did it in the language of science. In a way, you could see how successful, how quick and successful the rise of secular liberal civilization had been, that even the believers now felt they had to justify themselves in scientific terms. I mean, there's no longer enough to say, well, I feel it's true and that's good enough for me. It was no long enough to say it's a metaphor, because a metaphor is, is, is a, a confection. It's an imaginary thing. It does, it's not as solid as, as it's not made of steel or iron. Instead, they had to rationalize it in terms of the best for everybody. Instead of perfection as the goal, we have utilitarianism, in other words, which is a very democratic way of looking at it, isn't it? Because it means if 51% of it's correct, that's good enough. And so you have all of these forms of reasoning about theology, which say, well, as long as we can preserve a possibility of 51% of it being true in some way, then we'll make it. But that does not inspire people. Certainly doesn't inspire people in the same way as the prospect of getting rich or living forever, which are two far more attractive and, and rather pagan ideals, frankly. These, of course, are much more attractive, and so is belonging to a nation which is on the march. And the result is that these, these fallback positions become less and less appealing. Everywhere across the West, the liberal dispensations, Christian or Jewish, have basically seen their numbers disintegrate. Only those who uh, make a, a, a strong enough demand on their followers for things to be meaningful, in effect, have been able to retain anything like their numbers. And of course, the more demands they make, the more they retain. Because, you know, we are thinking creatures in some ways, and we need a sense of purpose in what we do. Religion no longer provides people with enough of a purpose. And you could see it happening already in the 19th century. And the, the substitute ideas that have been offered, including those of a global spirituality, the mystery of India, in which you could hide all your doubts. That kind of thing was well established in the 1800s. It, was, it had already become a conventional thing to do in a way for the equivalent of the modern backpacker to go east and travel about and, and uh, experience these new spiritual dimensions uh, to their life. And of course, the patron saint of all of these people is one of the greatest frauds of the modern age, which is uh, Helena Blavatsky. Madame Blavatsky. Yes, I wanted you to talk to her. She's very interesting. Well, she is. I mean, she's a, she's a terrible imposter, <laughs> but, but like a truly skillful fraudster, she had a perfect feel for her victims. She um, understood the spiritual needs and turmoil of the age. She understood also, having traveled a lot, apparently in a circus at one point, all over Europe and Russia and the Near East and then coming to America. She was a product, in a way, of a sort of globalized, linked-up world that was coming into shape in those decades. And she created a product for it um, while being very careful to make it equal parts inspiring and also rather hard to pin down. 
in that this was a religious doctrine which, like the progressive hopes of the age, was continually moving forward. You couldn't really pin her down the point of doctrine in the way that you could, say, with a, a, a priest. She wasn't committed like that to the past. She was committed to the future and this unfolding, really, of the human spirit. And famously, she went to India and, and it's still there, the Theosophical Society, which was the, meant to be the new universal spiritual church for the new age of globalization. The Theosophical Society is still there, in fact, at Adya, and, and still goes on. But her ideas, on the other hand, are everywhere now. Again, everything we call new age is basically contained in the life of Helena Blavatsky, which is, which is an astounding thing. I mean, this is, she is in, in some ways in sort of an 18th century mountebank. You know, one of those imposters who would go from court to court. But she did it in the 19th century, in the age of mass media and mass democracy, and became a kind of star. And the early roles of the Theosophical Society are really the, the, the roles of, of, of like the best and brightest, or at least the most famous of the age. You've got people like Oscar Wilde and Thomas Edison in the early, uh, first to sign up in Britain and America. And later, of course, her most famous pupil, officially anyway, is Mohandas Gandhi. It's Gandhi who says that it's Blavatsky when he was in London as a law student. Blavatsky who returned him to his sense of himself as an Indian, possessed of what they would call a Mahatma, a great soul. So you cannot separate the creation of Gandhi, who is one of the uh, you know great images of religious and religious politics in particular of the modern age. You cannot separate the creation of Gandhi from Madame Lovatsky, nor actually can you, you know, separate the creation of another significant figure like that, um, say Hitler, who is, you know, in some sense intellectually the love child of Wagner and Madame Lovatsky, if you can imagine such a thing. That that our age of, of nationalism and so on is the product of that religious sentiment which fired the creation of uh, modern nations, you know, in the Reformation and so on. And and Lovatsky I suspect, didn't entirely realize what would happen. She was, like many people in the 19th century, an optimist. I mean, most people these days are quite pessimistic, unless they're in Silicon Valley or working in, in uh, the medical insurance business. I think they're quite, they're not positive, they're not optimistic generally. In the 19th century, was still an um, age of optimism and so on. And Mavatsky, I think, apart from being an imposter, generally did actually believe that she was engaged in the improvement of humanity and was going to take it across some spiritual threshold into you know, her new age. It's an interesting hybrid of spiritualism, rationalism, and occultism, and to read one or two sentences off of Wikipedia about theosophy, it says it teaches there's an ancient and secret brotherhood of spiritual adepts known as the masters, who, although found around the world, are centered in Tibet. These masters are alleged by Blavatsky to have cultivated great wisdom and supernatural powers. So it sounds like a mix of Scientology and Red Skull and Captain America, who's looking for secret occultic powers. I have to say that whenever I'm doing research on ancient civilizations, there's always a lot of weird theosophist uh, blogs that pop up talking about Atlantis or um, yeah. uh, things of that. So it's uh, those ideas have just littered any kind of ideas about the ancient world or the configuration of the pyramids or the Nazca lines in South America and whatnot. But I, I, so I'm, I suppose I'm giving examples of some of the lingering after effects of uh, theosophy. But before we uh, just kind of wrap up these ideas about how they influence the 21st century, do you, still, do you see this as some of the effects and lingering after effects of theosophy today? I do. You know, there's that old line that we're all Marxists and Freudians without realizing it, because so much of our mental furniture has been shaped by Marx and Freud. And, and I think we're all Blavatskyites without realizing it, that all of the uh, obsession we have with our inner lives and our casual interest in, in yoga and Indian religion and so on, and all of these things are Blavatskyite New Age practices. If, if you were to pick up a magazine you know, in Whole Foods today and compare the contents of it to an issue of the magazine that was called The New Age from the 1890s, you'd find it completely unchanged. All the same obsessions about diet, fresh air, sandal wearing, yoga, and so on, all of these. And their linkage, of course, to a particular political mentality that you know was actually called by that point progressivism with a big P, but also held that you could improve society by rational means. In other words, that you could hold a completely irrational set of beliefs about how you live 
while simultaneously applying pure reason to the organization of society. Well, how's that going? Excellent point. And for listeners who want to see this push satirically in the most extreme direction, I recommend watching Silicon Valley, the Mike Judge show on HBO, (laughs) where one of the characters is a parody of Steve Jobs, where it takes his premium moral righteousness and Eastern influence, where he does a namaste head bow, um, yet is uh, 200% more sociopathic and willing to destroy everyone around him if they're going to save the world before he can save the world. So there's um, uh, yeah, Nietzsche, Nietzscheism and Eastern spirituality mixed in uh, terrible hubris and egoism. So there you go. That's our world today. I, th- I think you've confirmed my, my theories there, Professor. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask about what this time period can tell us about today. Because, I mean, as you mentioned, the 21st century In some senses, we're experiencing incredible decentralization where traditional institutions are more distressed than any other time. But then in other ways, there's a shocking recentralization where five tech companies in the United States, at least, essentially control all expressions of online content. And some nations like China have a social credit score. So there's a unbundling, but then at the same time, a rebundling there are more distress in traditional institutions, which include religious institutions. But as you noted, it doesn't mean people are becoming less religious. They may call what they believe spirituality. It's a sense of the immaterial world, but they're not expressing it through traditional organized religion, rather their own configuration. So based on what you've seen in the 19th century at this time period about how the human you know, predilection for spirituality can change sometimes rapidly in response to social unrest or social change or what's going on around them. Is there anything that you would argue from your book and your examination of this time period that applies to today? Yeah, the first thing is this, and it's something uh, Alexis de Tocqueville noticed when he came to the United States, that the more individualized we become, the more customized our environments, whether they're our home with our home movie theater or our online life, the more fine-tuned an individual they are, the less we have need of other people, and the more there is a retreat from society, and the more, therefore, the individual has, has, simply has less influence politically, socially. And that, of course, is something which is, is happening quite demonstrably. I mean, you know, even before COVID, there was um, Robert Putnam and Bowling Alone and all these other studies showing the fraying of uh, local and, and small links between people, that, which are really the foundations of a society. That you can already see happening in the 19th century, atomization, as we call it. The other thing is, is the great movement that brings people back together as you say, under a form of technological control. And one of the other dreams of the 19th century, and again, one of the dreams that specifically said this is a successor to Christianity, is the liberalism, in a way, of Auguste Comte, the the French contemporary, really, of Karl Marx, who founded what he called the religion of humanity, which was effectively a religion of technology in which society was run by the successors, say, to the priests and bishops, who were uh, the kings of technology. Uh, there were there were committees of technologists who decided how everything should be run. And of course, you don't have to squint too much when you look at how things are run, say, in the modern United States, to see something similar emerging. The power of the big tech corporations is precisely what Comte was dreaming of back in the 19th century. And of course, it's precisely the sort of thing that the founders of this country did not want to happen. In fact, that to have a single group of people with so much influence over the political system. But power for its own sake being one of the great discoveries in a way of the 19th century. And it's linked to this hope for, for effectively religious transformation. It's not accidental, I suppose, that Silicon Valley is both a source of enormous amount of political influence, but also the center of uh, efforts to live forever, the cryogenics, which is the sort of thing we used to laugh about when Walt Disney went into the deep freeze, that cryogenics and living to 200 or 300 are now very much back in fashion, that these effectively religious spiritual motives have become very much tied up with a ruling class, in effect, that has developed, which is very much concerned with real-world power and its uses. And and I don't think that's a very positive sign. And I do think the origins of that can be very clearly seen in the 19th century and in the way that the cult of technology uh, managed to replace the institutional religion 
and uh, instead convince us that uh, the machines were the answer to our problems. Of course, they were if you're a factory worker. No doubt the machine made it easier. But, you know, the machines, as has been pointed out, they, they don't have a, an inner life. And human beings do, whether they like it or not. And all of this dilemma that we now find ourselves in, uh, can we trust our fellow voters? Can we trust the information we have? Can we trust the people who lead us? All of these things are very much becoming palpable in the late 19th century, because their world is ours. Well, as you described, this is a study of history, but has a lot of contemporary relevance. And for listeners who want to look into this story in much greater detail, the name of your book is The Religious Revolution, The Birth of Modern Spirituality, 1848 to 1898. Dominic, thank you for joining us. Scott, thank you. It's been fantastic. All right. That is it for today. If you would like to see show notes for this episode, along with all my others, go to parthenonpodcast.com. That's the name of the podcast network that I'm a part of, along with James Early's Key Battles of American History, Steve Guerra's Beyond the Big Screen and History of the Papacy, and other great history shows as well. If you'd like to support History Unplugged, the two easiest ways to do so are to subscribe to the show on the podcast player of your choice and leave a review. The second way is to join our membership program, and if you do so, you'll get completely ad-free episodes of the entire back catalog, which is 600 episodes and growing, just go to patreon.com slash unplug. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Calitrin is a weight loss supplement made from collagen protein and digestive enzymes. Calitrin is designed to assist the body in repairing and rebuilding lean muscle using top quality ingredients. The reason it contains collagen, which is the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the body, is because it decreases as we age. Because Calitrin rebuilds this critical protein, it promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. I tried it for a month, slept great, felt more energetic, and noticeably shed weight that was gained over the holidays. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. Here are some customer testimonials. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. And Diane not only lost weight, but found relief from arthritis. This week, you can take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is extremely easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and you'll get a link to this special offer. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605.